Well, we have a really interesting topic that we're talking about today, one that uh, I've been really interested in, and so I am so excited to be having this discussion, especially with uh, someone like Josh Bice from G3, uh, I think because he has a lot of insight uh, into this entire conversation regarding uh, the new Calvinism or neo-Calvinism and where we stand uh, today. Just before we get to that, I just want to just hit a couple house cleaning items here real quick and just let our listeners know uh, that they can go over to redgracemedia.com now. A brand new website uh, when we're now doing these blogs and also we're doing video and we're doing blo- uh, we're doing uh, podcasting, blogs, and video. Also, we're going to be featuring any film projects that we're doing. We're getting really close actually to announcing uh, a big project and so very exciting things going on, but uh, just... Uh, Find your way over to redgracemedia.com and uh, take advantage of all the resources there. Uh, well, uh, Josh, I want to give you as much time, brother, as we can, and uh, really appreciate you jumping on the program with me today. Uh, Christ and Kingdom is really dedicated, brother, to just uh, the advancement of Reformed theology, especially in the areas of biblical theology, uh, Reformed theology, covenant theology, and eschatology, all of the above. Uh, but today we have a very, very, um, very, very serious topic to talk about in terms of the neo-Calvinist movement. But before we get to that, let let me just um, let me just have you talk a little bit about the G three network and what is what's going on right now with G three. I know you guys. I've been getting your updates, your emails, and stuff like that. A lot of it sounds like a lot of exciting stuff is getting ready to to drop over at G three. So what's what's going on with you guys? And welcome to the show, brother. Yeah, good to be with you. Yeah, so so yeah, obviously the Lord's been very gracious to us. And uh, the the plans with G three they have been continuously uh, expanding, and we've been seeing the you know everything from G three Press and the publication of books and commentaries to the growth of the G three Church Network, a collection of churches that partner together. Uh, we pray together. We we engage in ministry projects together, church planting and things of that nature. And it's just been a, a great encouragement to my soul as we exited the Southern Baptist Convention as a local church and were able to identify with this new network, the G3 network. It's just been a, a great encouragement to me because, you know, pastors need pastors and it's a wonderful time each month to be able to come together with other pastors and to be able to talk about ministry, to be able to talk about doctrine together, to be able to, you know, work through all of these that, you know, the, the typical things that we would face in a, in a given week as it pertains to uh, just pastoral ministry. And so, you know, those monthly phone calls, those monthly Zoom calls are really important and it's beneficial. It's not a waste of time. Like I don't leave those meetings thinking that I could have spent that time doing other things and it would have been more profitable. So it's it's certainly a, a great encouragement to me. And just to watch how the Lord is building the network is, is super encouraging as well. But as we think about G3, obviously, we just wrapped up a construction project. Uh, new offices have been established here. And then also with that, a studio, we're going to be churning out uh, a new season of the G3 podcast coming pretty soon as well as, uh, you know, teaching resources and other uh, resources will be coming from that studio as well. Um, so 
super excited about what the Lord is doing with G3 Ministries. It's a blessing for me just to be a part of it. Amen. That sounds that sounds really exciting. Um, what about the G3 network? I know that I've you know we talked about that in the past, and uh, that sounds like a really exciting opportunity for churches as well. Uh, you know, there are so many different networks, and and there, there's so many different uh, denominations and groups that churches can kind of partner with and stuff like that. But uh, you know, going through the 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 G3 network um, and all of the stuff that the resources that you guys uh, provide, it, it really is a remarkable opportunity. I think it's so needed, and if people wanted to get involved in that, just just briefly tell us a little bit of like why and what is it and what it entails. Yeah, so pastors need pastors, churches need churches. Uh, biblically speaking, if you look at the New Testament, you see that a case can be made for partnership and ministry from local church to local church. So, you know, the idea of being a Lone Ranger pastor and a Lone Ranger sort of church that's just an island unto itself in a community is not really healthy. And so the network exists for the purpose of being an encouragement to other churches and, and pastors. So to be a part of this network, um, there's an application on the G3 Ministries website, g3min.org, and you can, uh, again, fill out the application to join the network. Uh, There are specific parameters that, you know, basically shield us from being this massive big tent operation. So in other words... We have a stake in the ground that we want to hold to that doesn't make us all clones of one another because there are, uh, you know, a a great variety of churches that make up this G3 church network. You'll have some Bible churches, some Southern Baptist churches, independent Baptist churches. And so you see all sorts of different variety in this network. But as we look at the churches, we're coming together with a confessional statement that we call or that we know as the 1689 London Baptist Confession. That doesn't mean that every single article in that confession has to be held to without any qualification. It just means that that's the stake in the ground. We're going to try to be as close to that as possible. And then, you know, some churches may provide qualifications on certain articles within that confession. But that confessional document is solid. It provides us a good, robust understanding of you know, theology and and foundational theological uh, principles and doctrines that we would like to keep as as core principles and doctrines to this network. Mm-hmm. And what that prevents is from us being a part of this like big tent operation like we've seen in recent days within the Southern Baptist Convention, where you have, you know, some churches that are, you know, solid and healthy and and robust. And then you have others that are shallow and superficial and leaning leftward on specific issues that are massively troubling. So it's our attempt to try to stay as close to a stake, a flag in the ground that gives us a specific identity. And then also we would ask that, that you know, uh, either the church or the pastors of that church would be willing to sign the statement on social justice and the gospel. Again, this prevents us from having partnership with churches that are teaching uh, 
you know, CRT or intersectionality or getting involved in identity politics and sort of driving that into the life of this network. We want to try to keep that away from this network so that we can partner together for gospel ministry and church planting. So again, it's a massive encouragement to me. I know it is to a lot of others. We're seeing probably anywhere from three to six churches per week that are now joining this network. So it's it's super encouraging. Mm. Oh, that's phenomenal. Well, that's really great, uh, Josh. And we we obviously uh, pray for nothing but success and and for you guys to really be uh, flourished in that. Um, let's talk a little bit about your conference. Um, obviously, I've never, uh, you know, the last big conference you guys had in Atlanta, that was my first G3 conference I went to. And uh, it was a very big conference. It reminded me somewhat of the Shepherds Conference or something on that scale. Bigger, I think it was than that, but uh, it was really a great time. Uh, saw a lot of friends there and stuff, and uh, we had some good fellowship there for sure. Uh, but tell us about this upcoming conference on the sovereignty of God. Um, I guess the question I would have for you is kind of an obvious one, you know, especially for people that subscribe to Reformed uh, theology and the doctrines of grace and confessionalism and things like this. Almost the question comes comes up as to why why another conference on the sovereignty of God and why now? Yeah, what's well, a fantastic question? Um, I think that as we think about the sovereignty of God, it's it is the bedrock foundation of of the scriptures. It is the bedrock foundation of God Himself. Because if you strip away the sovereignty of God, you don't have God, and so. You know, when we start thinking about how we describe God, but but more importantly, how God has revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture, it is indeed the picture of a robust, sovereign, holy, majestic ruler who is king of all kings, lord of all lords, and is ruling and reigning over all things at all times. That means that God is ruling over creation. He's ruling over uh, thrones. He's ruling over nations. He's ruling over individuals. He's ruling over the circumstances of life, the tragedies of life, the blessings of life. He's ruling over uh, uh, over all of uh, uh, nature itself. And, and again, Jesus puts this on display for us, does he not, in his earthly ministry as we see Jesus controlling the, the, the natural laws, if you will, walking upon the top of the water, uh, causing the wind to cease and the, and the, the waves to, to be still just at his, his speech, just at his, the command of his voice. And so when we think about the sovereignty of God, we need to see that that is the core doctrine of, of God himself. But if we're honest, we're living in a world that's confused about God. We're living in a world that's confused about life itself. People are gripped with fear. Suicide rates are astronomical. There's all sorts of problems all around us. And yet it seems as if even people within the church are looking to external factors for the solution rather than to God himself. And then if we're honest in terms of salvation, if we look at uh, the the typical evangelical church and the typical explanation of salvation, it actually describes salvation in a way that depicts God as someone that is or a being that is not sovereign. Mm. 
So in other words, we, we hear the typical explanation of how salvation works and how God saves people. And it's always that man is free and God isn't. And so as long as we protect the, the free will of man, then, you know, it doesn't really matter if God is restricted. And so what they typically do is they go on to describe salvation as if God is looking through this tunnel of time to see what Josh is going to do in the future. And when Josh hears the presentation of Jesus, if he chooses Jesus, then he's the elect. If he rejects Jesus, then he's going to be condemned under the justice and the wrath of God. And so that is their view of predestination. The problem with that is that makes man, that makes me, Josh, free, and it restricts God as some a being that just basically responds to Josh. And yet it also, at the same time, it puts on display a being that does not possess all knowledge at all times. So God is actually having to learn something. He's actually having to look into the future and gain knowledge. And we certainly see that when we read the Bible, if we're honest, that is not the picture that the Bible puts on display for us as it pertains to our triune God. And so we need to see, and we need to have, uh, you know, uh, again, uh, another fresh look, another very careful examination at the doctrine of God's sovereignty. And so as we think about R.C. Sproul, you know, said years ago, he said that the doctrine of God's sovereignty is God's favorite doctrine. Mm. And so, you know, A.W. Pink sounds like something he would say. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, A.W. Pink said that God does, that God is sovereign and that he does what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. So when we think about the way that scholars from church history have described God and we read the the doctrines of scripture and we then we compare that to the typical presentation of God or the presentation of the gospel in modern evangelicalism they th- th- there's a massive disconnect there so yes obviously within the reformed circles the sovereignty of God is is something that is is at the heart of what we stand for but if we're honest, the culture around us and even the, the Christianese, if you will, the, the shallow evangelicalism that's, that's around us is consistently deforming our understanding of who God is. So this, this, this conference is going to be centered on the, the, the big theme of the sovereignty of God, and we're going to have sermons that will unpack the sovereignty of God in creation, the sovereignty of God in suffering that people suffer uh, according to the will of God. They suffer where God intends for them to suffer, how God intends for them to suffer, how long God intends for them to suffer. And some even suffer all the way to death and they're martyred for their faith. And this, of course, is according to God's sovereign plan. We're going to have sermons that are going to be focused on that. We're going to have sermons that are going to be focused on the sovereignty of God and salvation. In other words, that God is sovereign over who is elect and who is not, who is ultimately saved and who is not. God is sovereign over heaven. God is sovereign over hell. So we're going to have sermons that are going to put on display from the pages of Scripture and drive our hearts back to see 
what the Bible actually says about God. I think it's going to be super beneficial. It's going to be one of those conferences that I think ignites our hearts with passion to worship God, but also sends us home with with a practical understanding that God is very much interested in not just Sunday morning worship or the last judgment, but he's also interested in, you know, my drive to work on a Monday morning. And so we just need to think in terms of what God has said about himself in the pages of scripture, that he is indeed a sovereign, ruling, majestic, holy, powerful God, and that there is no other being that is more powerful than he is. Uh, Yeah, that's excellent. And I think one of the reasons why a conference like that is still so necessary is because, as you know, I mean, we're still kind of in the early stages of what is known as kind of the new Calvinist resurgence and what's going on there. Uh, still still kind of undetermined. We don't know where it's all going to go, right? We, we, we still, I mean, if you, it, it's, so, it's so funny, but when you look at church history, I mean, we're talking centuries of development of things. And so we need to really look at uh, our own time in the, you know, just coming right out of the 20th into the 21st century to know where is this new, uh, you know, revived interest in Calvinism and Reformed theology? Where's this all going? Because already, um, it's gone in certain directions that are not really great. Um, and so I think a, a, a sort of a reminder and a realignment to come back to maybe a more true, pure, reformed expression of what does it mean to be Calvinist, right? Like, we, we can't just hijack the concept of Calvinism and kind of strip it and deconstruct it from its reformed context, you know. But uh, let's talk a little bit about that, uh, Josh, just where do you think uh, the neo-Calvinists, and I would say I'm in that movement because I was born during that time uh, in terms of the generation thereof, and I was certainly, uh, you know, around, and I became a Christian right around the time in the 90s, the mid-90s, you know, Piper was really surging, and people were getting really interested in R.C. Sproul, and, you know, different, you've done a few blogs on this, and you've actually mentioned these things, but... uh, where do you think we stand uh, in terms of that today? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, when I wrote the book on the New Calvinism, and we, it's basically, you know, I contributed to it and edited the chapters, uh, we were basically attempting to complement where we could complement and then critique where we saw a need for correction. Um, when we think about the new Calvinism movement, as you well stated, you know, you had specific figures that God has raised up. So in R.C. Sproul, um, you could go back to James Montgomery Boyce. You could go to individuals um, like John MacArthur, for instance, and you can see how God raised them up at a specific time. And then through the use of technology, allowed for people to start to listen to sermons that were distinct from what they were typically being fed uh, from a shallow pulpit on a typical Sunday morning within uh, evangelicalism. So basically what you saw was you saw that God in his sovereignty was allowing the use of radio. So with R.C. Sproul and and, and then, of course, Sproul was was a pioneer of, of television as well in the, in the early days as far as using television for, for gospel ministry. But the radio with John MacArthur and then the Internet was a massive explosion 
that allowed for a lot of younger people that were typically engaging in search engines and, you know, listening to MP3s and all of that, uh, God would, would take that technology and the access of good theology and then deliver it to a younger population. And suddenly you have younger people that are starting to get excited about the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God over all things, the supremacy of Christ over all things, the sovereignty of God over salvation, and and the, the robust preaching of these Reformed preachers. And then these men are quoting the Puritans, and they're quoting, you know, figures from church history. They're quoting the Reformers. And so now you have a younger population that's not only listening to a John MacArthur or a John Piper or an R.C. Sproul, but now they're going back to read The Death of Death and the Death of Christ by John Owen. Or they're going to the Puritans and they're reading these Puritans. They're reading John Bunyan. They're reading these different these different authors and, and preachers and scholars from church history. And it started to ignite within them this passionate desire to to have an understanding of what God has said about himself in the pages of Scripture, what God has communicated clearly, as well as uh, the right preaching of the Word of God. So when we think about, say, Jesus' ministry, when you see Jesus, you know, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, and he's saying, you have heard that it was said unto you X, Y, and Z, but but I say unto you, and then he declares the truth of, of God's Word— He's not changing the word of God. What he's doing is he's clearing up the false preaching of the rabbis of his day. And in many ways, that's what you saw happening with this this new Calvinism movement at the very beginning. It was taking a new generation and connecting them to very old truths that predated Calvin, but just happened to be, you know, using Calvin's name, Calvinism. And yet, as well with with certain borders within evangelicalism. So as you know, you look back at traditional classic Calvinism, and you see that it's primarily within a group of Presbyterians and Baptists, very conservative theologically and in terms of worship. But the new Calvinism movement within this this explosion that started taking place was also incorporating individuals that were outside of the norm. So now you have people who claim to be reformed, but they're also charismatic. So they're, they're holding to the continuation of the apostolic gifts. And so the tent started to, to get a bit wider, if you will, as it pertains to new Calvinism. And so at the time when we wrote the book, uh, the 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 goal, if you will, of the book was to say <clears throat> the 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 robust passion that you have for theology and for solid, you know, forty five and fifty minute expositional sermons. Man, that's wonderful. But the problem is, is when you see guys that are sitting in a coffee shop with a Jonathan Edwards T shirt on and a long beard and a a whole sleeve full of tattoos, sipping a latte with earbuds in, listening to a sermon on the Lord's Day at a coffee shop. 
and he's disconnected from his local church. And so you could see certain veins of the new Calvinism that were not healthy and they were leaning in a direction that wasn't good. And so then you started noticing that there was a culture of the new Calvinism. It tends to be more edgy. And so, you know, you have people that are wanting to expand beyond, you know, the the issues of just theology and start talking about Christian liberty. So now let's, let's marry, you know, robust theology to, to bourbon and cigars and sit down and have our, you know, new tattoo of the 1689 on our shoulder or whatever it might be with our Spurgeon t-shirt on. And so now you've got all of these worlds that are coming together and intersecting and it was massively popular and it seemed like a really, really good thing. And as you mentioned at the front side of this question, the outcome has yet to be determined, but I would argue that even now, what we're seeing is that the new Calvinism itself has failed. There's already been fractures that have happened. I mean, you see this even within T4G, and now they've had their final conference, but they started to have massive problems as a result of what? As a result of the introduction of social justice into their ministry. And so in many ways, these these individuals that were in, in some ways put into leadership positions within the new Calvinism movement, they opened the gates to specific additives and things that caused the people that were, were a part of the movement itself to have a diminished view of, say, the sufficiency of Scripture. And then it, it started to lead them in a direction to where say when you have the Southern Baptist Convention voting to adopt a resolution on critical race theory and intersectionality, you had new Calvinist leaders that were in the room that were voting for it and then encouraging others to to vote for it. And and that that's just a continuous problem. So what we're seeing is a present day, a fracture in the new Calvinism movement. And I would argue that a lot of the leaders within the new Calvinist movement have capitulated and they've, they, they've swung the gates open wide to the social justice train to roll right in. And so, so this is an ongoing problem. It's an ongoing development. And we're going to continue to see the, the outworkings of this as we continue to move forward. But I was more hopeful for the new Calvinism when we wrote the book than I am now. If I were to write another edition I would argue that the new Calvinism has at this point failed. Yeah, and you even see that going back, if we go back to the early influencers, you know, we often identify these influencers like Sproul, like Piper, like, you know, MacArthur and others. And we can't lump them all together, right? Because I remember, I remember expressly being frustrated that somebody like John Piper was platforming people that had nothing to do, in my mind, with authentic Reformed theology, and even if they were Reformed or they were Calvinists, you know, they they often came with a bunch of baggage. I mean, uh, just through John Piper, I mean, we saw John Piper, in a sense, foist upon us the likes of Driscoll and Rick Warren and Francis Chan and, you know, Matt Chandler, who is now woke and egalitarian, and, and even Doug Wilson with Federal Vision Theology. I mean, these are the kind of people that Piper platforms 
and suddenly it, it, it introduces all sorts of confusion, don't you think? Well, it does. I mean, obviously, when you start thinking about, you know, individuals like the Bidian Yabwile, who came up, was in many ways mentored by some of these leaders and has gone completely off of the rails, uh, promoting identity politics and, and Marxism. I mean, it's just been a massive problem to see. Um, again, I, I, I was I was I was massively impacted by John Piper's ministry. I was actually a college student sitting in the field when he preached that famous quote unquote seashell sermon at that passion event, that one day conference in Memphis, Tennessee. So I was sitting there listening to him preach and I was unconverted and the Lord would later convert me, save me. Uh, I was a lost church member. And then years later, I would have the opportunity to, you know, talk to John Piper personally to thank him for his ministry and for for helping me in so many ways. But again, who we platform matters. And that's one of the reasons that I I'm grateful for the ministry of John MacArthur because you know, if John MacArthur you, you might you might disagree with MacArthur on a lot of different things, right? But and, and again, no man is perfect. But one of the things that has been a massive encouragement to my soul is to watch Dr. MacArthur say, you know, I'm going to stand on the truth. And if these men, if my friends aren't going to stand with me, then they're going to have to make that determination on their own. But as for me, I'm going to stand on the truth. And if that means dividing from my friends, then so be it, because I'm going to stand on the truth. And so, you know, again, I want to be a, a man like that, that has a backbone that has conviction, that is willing to stand, if need be, all alone. And I think that, that, that we, should, we should certainly want to, you know, walk in the footsteps of someone like that. And the reason yeah. why is because we're going to continuously see streams and fractures and division within movements. Movements come and movements go, but the truth remains the same. And we need to be fixated on truth, not necessarily the, the whims and the winds of a movement, because that can lead us astray. Well, it's actually why I appreciate G3 taking a, um, taking a confessional posi- position. You know, I've often told people that I'm kind of an intra-confessional person myself. I'm obviously a Baptist. Westminster Confession is probably my favorite. But I love all the confessions. I've taught through all the confessions, and I'm very confessional in that way. Uh, but it does definitely bring us into um, alignment with historic reform theology. Let me touch on something that actually you wrote uh, in in 2016 when you were talking about the new Calvinism. Um, you're actually quoting R.C. Sproul, but then you follow up with something, and I, I kind of want to spend the rest of our time talking about this, Josh, because as we think about the neo-Calvinist movement, and we can talk about all the problems, we can talk about all the, you know, imbalances and where people are going astray, but we also want to bring uh, uh, the correction, we, we, we want to bring the antidote, we want, to, we want to bring the answer as well, because when people listen to this, right, uh, a lot of times they get, they get overwhelmed with, oh man, you know, uh, Josh and Emilio are talking about all these problems, and, you know, what do I do, and this has to do with people I like, and things like that. 
So eventually we have to head towards an answer, towards a positive answer and positive formulation. But you quote R.C. Sproul, and let me just read this for a second. You said, you said here uh, in your article, what is the new Calvinism? You said, R.C. Sproul writes, quote, the late theologian Cornelius Van Til, uh, I'll be really honest with you, that's why I was drawn to this quote. <laughs> I'm, I'm a big Van Til guy. <laughs> but, you know, the theologian Cornelius Van Til once made the observation that Calvinism is not to be identified with the so, so-called five points of Calvinism. Rather, Van Til concluded that the five points function as a pathway or a bridge to the entire structure of Reformed theology. And then you go on to say, it's important to realize that there is much more to Reformed doctrine than merely the doctrine of soteriology, although that is the basic fundamental or foundational level. And that the reason I was drawn to that too, uh, Josh, is because um, that's exactly what I'm after at Red Grace Media, is a consistent Reformed theology, or what I'm calling more and more these days, distinctly Reformed theology, where we're kind of losing, we're, you know, people are sort of, it becomes kind of like a buffet, a hodgepodge of, you know, I'll take a little of this, a little bit of the doctrines of grace, maybe a little bit of the regulative principle or something like that, and then you kind of put it together in your own blender, you know, and cu- and come out with your own flavor kind of thing. But um, where, where, how can we start developing this distinctly Reformed a theology for people so that the doctrines of grace become a pathway or a bridge, not to any kind of style of Calvinism you want, but to, if you... You know, I guess to a more historic reform doctrine. Yeah. Well, if if we look at reformed theology as a whole, it does involve more than just soteriology, as I stated in that article. And I stand by that statement to this very minute. Uh, again, I think that that's one of the great failures of the New Calvinism movement is that the sufficiency of Scripture was abandoned in many way. Um, and they started to be influenced by, you know, what the culture wants in terms of worship, for instance. So the way I would like to describe it would be perhaps like an airplane. If you take soteriology as one wing on the airplane, but you remove the other wing, then what's going to happen? Well, obviously the plane's going to spiral out of control and it's going to, it's going to have a massive crash and burn at the end. And that's what we've seen with a lot of these leaders. That's what we've seen with a lot of these churches, because they'll claim to be a reformed church and they will talk about how big God is and how strong God is and how he reigns and rules over all things. And they'll quote a Kuiper quote every now and then about how Jesus cries that there's not one thing on planet Earth, one molecule that Jesus doesn't cry mine. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll use quotes like that. They'll quote Spurgeon and Calvin and Luther and Edwards and Knox. And they'll talk about how God is big, robust and strong. But then when you walk in their doors of their worship service, their church liturgy doesn't look like God is sovereign. Their church liturgy looks like it's a mess. It doesn't have anything to do with with a reformed view of worship. When we think about, you know, what, what it means to be reformed, I mean, it, it, it means more than, 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 than I just embrace that God is a big, strong, sovereign being. There's more to it than that. 
And so how we worship matters. So every church has a liturgy. It's either intentional and it's biblical or it's unintentional and shallow and, and, and worldly. And so when we think about these churches and we see them all around us, they'll claim to be a reformed church. But then when you walk in on the Lord's Day, then, you know, after the countdown clock stops on the screen, then the lights dim and then a praise band walks out and the guy, the, you know, guy playing the guitar has a, a, a flat bill cap on that says, you know, five solas or something like that. And he's got a trendy T-shirt on and their worship has been deformed to mirror the culture and so then you start to hear, you know, the preaching and the preaching sounds casual and sort of coffee, coffee shop-ish, you know. And so, there, you know, the, 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 the pastor's standing there and he's trying to use street cred lingo and he's not wanting to be too preachy, but yet he wants to say right things about God. And so he's, he's you know, preaching the passage at least and, and he's saying right things, but then the sermon's like, 23 minutes long. And, and so you start to see that the, the worship service has been deformed to mirror what the culture wants. The culture wants worship that makes them feel a certain way or that looks like the world or that looks like some sort of band that's in the secular sphere. And, you know, the, the culture wants shorter sermons and wants dumbed down, sort of watered down lingo instead of so preachy or, you know, quote unquote, high church music or high church words. So again, I know that's a long ways around the question, but I would just simply argue that you're right. And that what I stated in that article, I stand by it today, that there's more than just embracing the fact that God is big and strong. We have to have the totality of what it means to be reformed. And that means that the regulative principle is is impacting how we approach God and worship and that, that God is interested in how we worship. He has he has a blueprint for us to follow and we should be serious minded about it. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um I guess just quickly um before we kind of come to our time of closing here, uh Josh, what are some areas that you would say these are areas of focus where we can start directing people towards a more pure uh, reform theology. I know for me, I'm always thinking theological, so I might throw something out there like covenant theology or something like that. But but as you see it, uh, Josh, as somebody who really has their finger on the pulse of what's going on in many ways, uh, how would you start discipling people towards a more pure, uh, a consistent reform theology? What areas? I mean. So much to think about here, right? Because there's so many threats and there's so many influence. This woke woke stuff is going on, and liberalism and pagan worship and all this stuff. So, where how, how would you begin to pastorally advise for people to pursue a more pure reform theology? Yeah, again, we could talk about problems all day long, but it would be good for us to be you know solution oriented as well. And so, I would just argue to you know, when it comes to worship, when it comes to theology, and again, I believe that worship is a part of how the outworking of our theology should be put on display in how we worship God. And so I would, I would just urge believers to do some, some real good homework, to read some good books on worship, 
to read some good books on the regulative principle of worship. I've written an article on the regulative principle of worship. You can find that. It's just a simple explanation of red lights and green lights and boundaries and guardrails. And I use analogies like that in the article to try to help us understand that God has given us boundaries, but boundaries aren't necessarily a bad thing. When we're in the mountains and there's a steep cliff, we don't look at a guardrail and think, well, that's just so restrictive. I wish that there wasn't a guardrail. And you know, but if the brakes fail or the ground is is wet and you slide in a curve, you're thankful for a guardrail. And so the regulative principle operates in that way that it keeps us from catastrophic mistakes. So that when we're approaching God in worship, that we're approaching him in the way that he has prescribed that we worship him. So I would urge people to think about, yes, knowing God. So there are tons of books that you can read from the sovereignty of God. Uh, you could read R.C. Sproul's book on the sovereignty of God. You can read A.W. Pink's book on the sovereignty of God. You can read um, all sorts of books on the sovereignty of God. But then I would also encourage individuals to to read books on worship as well. Scott Annual at G3 Ministries has written an excellent book on worship, and you can find that on our website. John MacArthur has written a book years ago on worship, and that's helpful too. So we need to be thinking about how we worship God and what we believe about God. And yet again, allowing the scriptures to do the work to form our opinions and our positions about these matters. So informing us in terms of doctrine, but also at the very same time, the word of God provides for us the principles by which we live out that and in, in, in how we approach God and worship as well. So again, read really good books and then take time to think through. Like when you open your order of worship on the Lord's day, you need to ask yourself this question, why is that there and why is it in this order? And so should there be something else there or should there be less things that are here? Should there be some things that perhaps are removed from that order of worship? And so, again, these are just good questions to be asking yourself because the world is consistently deforming us. And when we talk about being reformed or we talk about semper reformanda, this idea of always being reformed, that doesn't mean when you see that Latin slogan, that doesn't mean that we should always be being brought back to John Calvin or being brought back to the five solas or being brought back to the five points of Calvinism. Semper reformanda means that we are being brought back to God's word. And so if the world is deforming us, and we can certainly agree that that is an ongoing process, that we need to be consistently engaged in being reformed according to God's word. And that's the goal. Oh, that's awesome. That's great, Josh. You know, and man, we can, we can obviously, we can, you know, go into so many different areas and we can just uh, tease this out, tease it out further and further and further. And um, maybe we'll have you back uh, where we can discuss maybe some very specific particulars, um, e even even academic things that are going on, like Thomism, uh, what's going on with theonomy today, what's going on, you know, with CRT specifically focusing on wokeism, 
and kind of a a, a new rise of egalitarian uh, 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 theology and stuff like that. So many issues, but I'd love to have you back for some more of that specific stuff where we can talk about all that stuff. Any 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 um, uh, closing remarks that you'd want to make? Yeah, I think that my closing exhortation would be to those that listen to your podcast, brother, that as a Christian, it is an unbelievable privilege to be called a child of the King. And when we talk about you know, whether it be problems like CRT or the rise of egalitarianism, or we talk about even naming names as we've done in this conversation about figures who have disappointed us. We need to be mindful of the reality that when we walk away from a conversation like this, we need to be examining ourselves and looking to see how we are perhaps being led astray by various voices or movements or, you know, ideas. But the reality is, at the end of the day, when we, when we lie down at, at night, just before we go off to sleep, we need to be thinking about the reality is, is that God has gifted us with life, and He has gifted us with eternal life through His Son. And just what an absolute, unbelievable privilege it is to be a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And so it's fun to chop and to talk about theology. It's fun to talk about polemics and to to dive into some of the dangers facing the church. But at the end of the day, it is an absolute thrill of my soul to know that Jesus died for me, that Jesus suffered and bled for me, that, that my hope is not in myself or my intellect or my power or my church membership or anything else. My hope is in Christ alone. And so that brings me great joy and it drives my soul day by day, to arrive with the corporate gathering of God's people in the context of my local church to praise our sovereign God for His great and awesome deeds. And and what greater deed, what greater work has God done than saving multitudes of wicked rebels through the blood of His Son? So that's my parting exhortation is that we would remember that we are children of the King. What a joy that is. Well, and if that is the foundation upon which G3 and the network and all that you guys are doing is going to be built upon, then we can expect it to succeed. And uh, we certainly pray that it does, brother. I appreciate you so much being on the show with me today, and hopefully the first of many. So thank you so much. Thank you to Josh uh, Bice and everybody at G3. Again, everybody uh, for the podcast, make sure you like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. And uh, until next time, God bless you on another episode. We'll see you, uh, Christ and Kingdom. God bless you. Mm-hmm.